You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. A rabbi is traveling on the New Jersey Turnpike and is in a serious accident. He's taken to the ICU in a hospital that sits on the New Jersey-Pennsylvania border. The doctors determine he is brain dead. Is he dead? This is a final exam question attorney Bill Colby has asked his senior law students and addresses in his book, Unplugged, Reclaiming Our Right to Die in America. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me today is attorney Bill Colby. Bill Colby is the lawyer who represented the family of Nancy Cruzan in the first Right to Die case heard by the U.S. Supreme Court. He worked on legislation which eventually became federal law, the Patient Self-Determination Act. A senior fellow with the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization in Washington, D.C., he is the author of The Long Goodbye, The Deaths of Nancy Cruzan, and Unplugged, Reclaiming Our Right to Die in America. Bill Colby, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. Thank you very much. Good to be with you, Susan. What's the answer to the exam question? <laughs> well, it got a little bit longer than that, but uh, it's, a, it's a question in the very last year of law school where it, it, those who have lawyers and their families uh, would tell you the answer is going to be in one way or another. Uh, it depends. In uh, Pennsylvania, the rabbi, as described in the question, is most certainly dead. He meets the state statutory definition of brain death. In New Jersey, interestingly, he may or may not be dead, uh, depending on what the attending physician knows about the tenets of the rabbi's faith or what's written in the chart about his particular beliefs. Uh, New Jersey in 1993 put an exception in their state law to the definition of brain death for an individual's religious beliefs. The class I've taught is at the University of Kansas, which is near where I live, so the point isn't particularly at a law school in the center of the country to look at how a state in the East put an exception in their state law to brain death, but it's, it's more to focus on what a remarkable place technology has brought us to, that that could be a serious question on a law school exam. When, when you think about it, for most of recorded time, when we were dead, we were dead. Our heart, our lungs, our brain all stopped at roughly the same time, but technology has changed that equation forever. I, uh, I often, when I speak at grand rounds or speak publicly on these topics, uh, ask this ex- question as an example to, to start the talk. And not long ago on the East Coast, someone raised their hand when I asked the question and said, the rabbi in a hospital on the New Jersey-Pennsylvania state border in all likelihood is dead because he's in the middle of a large river, so he probably would have drowned. In, uh, out in the center of the country, we don't make maybe that those kind of fine geographic dis- distinctions. But it, it is a pretty interesting place that uh, technology has brought us to. Will you describe the evolution of the definition of death in the U.S.? Again, for most of time, there wasn't really a definition. Death uh, simply was. Uh, there wasn't a need to define it in state statutes. There wasn't a need to define it in the court system, by, by common law, the doctors simply knew when death had occurred, and prior to that, probably lay people as well. But you think about and in the late 60s, the, the very first meeting at the Harvard Medical School of the uh, ad hoc committee on the, the definition of brain death, the group of doctors sitting around a table 
uh, and the doctor at the head of the table in, in 1969 saying to that assembled, our assignment here today is to change the definition of what it means to be dead. What a remarkable meeting and remarkable question. In 1970, Kansas became the first state to pass through its state legislature a definition of brain death or death where through the measurements of standard medical practice, it was determined there was no brain activity while the heart and lungs were uh, supported artificially. Um, and through the 70s and 80s, other states followed suit. And uh, then you have the example, uh, as uh, we talked about to, in the, the exam question, of uh, a state putting in an exception for religious beliefs. But, but again, it, the definition has come about as a result of our technology. And, and interestingly, our, our understanding in the broader society about these uh, debates, it's, it's, really, it's really pretty new. I, I was struck by how often in the... Uh, Terry Schiavo case uh, on various news outlets, people uh, in the news would describe Terry Schiavo as brain dead. She obviously was, she was had a serious injury, but she was obviously not brain dead because if you're brain dead by law, you are, uh, you are dead. So uh, again, hard questions that technology has brought to us in a relatively short uh, period of time. How have all these advances in medical technology made it harder to die? They certainly have delayed our time of death. We're, we're living, and that I think most people would agree is a good thing. We're living much longer and, and much healthier for a much longer period of time, in large part uh, due to uh, more sophisticated and better medical care, of which medicines and technology are apart. So they've had that effect. But then the second effect is they've changed where we die. I mean, there was a time not long ago when dying took place in the home. Now today, in about 80% of the cases, it takes place in an institution. And virtually always uh, today, our dying takes place as a result of some kind of decision about medicine or machinery uh, about not starting or stopping. So, so it, it has made our, our dying uh, a bit more managed and the result of decision-making. And that, that really is a decision-making that we're, we're just beginning to talk about in our society. What's your best advice on how to stay out of the courts with these types of cases? Well, that's exactly right. And I've, I've talked to judges on all ends of the spectrum as well, both uh, judges who were highly conservative before going on the bench or, or highly liberal, and, and it did not matter. None claimed any uh, special expertise. I mean, that's what courts do. When the rest of us cannot resolve our disputes, uh, courts are our last resort, and it's actually, I, I think, a pretty remarkable system in our democracy that, that we have, that even our most intractable disputes that we're willing to go to these people to be the arbiters, and then we abide by our our decision. And, and the best example to me is the, the 2000 election, which was obviously hotly contested. And then we went to a court and everybody said, all right, we'll, we'll abide by that. And courts do that in the end of life, too. But they're not necessarily equipped for it or good at it. And the way we avoid getting to that point is by doing the hard work of communication. If a case like the Nancy Cruzan case or Terry Schiavo or, or other cases that are, are less well-known makes it into the courts, it's typically because there's been uh, some kind of breakdown in communication or the communication just hasn't worked. But in, in the hospital setting, for example, 
there are all kinds of ways short of getting to the court system where disputes about medical care are resolved. They're in the patient's room with the doctor talking to the family, out in the hallway with a nurse or a social worker or a chaplain who's particularly good at discussing medical options. When it gets more formalized, there can be a case counsel on a floor. It can go to the ethics committee at uh, a hospital through various formal procedures. Some hospitals now have palliative care programs where you can have a palliative care referral to a palliative care doctor. So, so there, are, there are a lot of internal ways to and processes to move the discussion along, but it, it really is about discussion, and it's, it's about hard discussion. When, when lay people, when we are in the hospital, as, as your listeners know, we're in a time of huge stress typically, and it's an emotional time, and communication is, is hard even in the best of worlds. So it just takes the hard work of sitting down and, and talking with people about making what are what are profoundly hard decisions and unfortunately far too often we're talking with people who have not talked about these topics before they perhaps have not talked about them with their loved one who is now unable to speak and they're having to make decisions and and it's it's a difficult emotional process and the more our medical world can lead us and help us through that, I I think the better service they provide. You write that the state of Oregon is a good example of when people discuss dying, progress is made. What do you mean? Oregon is a pretty good case study. As people might know, Oregon is currently the only state in the country in which assisted suicide or physician-assisted dying is uh, legal. It's been legal now for uh, about nine years, I believe. There's very uh, detailed reporting that goes on in Oregon. To me, what's most interesting about the Oregon experience, the, the law itself has been used very, very little. Less than one-tenth of one percent of all deaths in Oregon are the result of physician-assisted dying, uh, mostly among cancer patients, mostly a, among upper-middle-class uh, cancer patients. So, so the law is, is hardly used. But the side effects from the discussion are really pretty remarkable. The people in Oregon have talked about death and dying more than anybody in any, any place in the country. They had two heavily funded, hotly contested ballot initiatives over a few years. They had many disputes in the court system. As their uh, former governor, uh, Barbara Roberts, Said, we were talking about dying in, in the barber shops and on golf courses and at bridge club. And once that discussion had happened, you couldn't put that toothpaste back in the tube. And as a result, they do death and dying better in Oregon. They have the highest hospice utilization rate in the country. They have a low in-hospital death rate. They have high scores with people's satisfaction on management of pain. They have innovative programs like the POLST program, P-O-L-S-T, started at the state medical school. They have much more education in their state medical school on end-of-life issues. So I think it may be a bit of an overgeneralization, but the point is that talking about dying in whatever context makes us a a little better at it. Is it true that patients who have expressed interest in physician-assisted suicide did so because they feared a loss of control? Well, that's certainly written a a decent amount in the literature discussing the Oregon experience, and surveys of people suggest that that is a great concern at at the end of life, that we've, we've lost control, that will be a burden 
on our loved ones, however it's described. And even though the physician-assisted dying law has been used very infrequently, there are people who have cited the idea that they take some comfort in knowing that the law is there. So, so there are control issues involved. But in, in my, my sense is physician-assisted dying is, is never going to be a huge social issue because there's so much work to do short of that, better access to hospice, more palliative care. Uh, and and I, I really think that's where our, our societal focus should and, and in all likelihood will be. Bill Colby, thank you for joining us today to discuss your latest book, Unplugged, Reclaiming Our Right to Die in America. I'm Susan Dolan. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.